0: The main argument that uh, I would like to advance in my talk today is that foreign policy making is inextricably linked to the image that a country has about itself. I will argue that the key to understanding how countries view their external security environment lies with an understanding of how countries view themselves. That is, it lies with an understanding of how countries develop their national identities. And let me give you an idea about the uh, theoretical framework that I developed which allows me to connect national identity to foreign policy making. In my theory, I argue that to a large extent, countries' identities are the... Uh, they reflect the interplay between secular morality, economic interest, and religious beliefs at the domestic level. Specifically, I argue that religious beliefs help reconstruct public morality and ethical codes, and by doing so, define and redefine a country's national identity. As a result, according to my theoretical argument, Decisions about whether to go to war or not are not simply the domain of politicians, nor does war result mainly from the imperatives of the international system. The perception of external threat to a country's security, the necessity of going to war, or the need to use diplomatic means for resolving a diplomatic dispute are tied to how countries see themselves. In my work, I have found that religion is the intermediary between economic interest and national codes of morality, the two most important elements in the construction of a country's self-image. And it is this national, this national self-image that determines to a large extent what is in the national interest of a country. And it is the definition of a state's national interest that guides countries when choosing between pacific and aggressive means for resolving diplomatic disputes. In my research so far, I have been able to recover the two most important elements of American national identity. Around which, the two elements around which the country has been building its national consensus. What I said earlier is the national ideology. And the country has been building this national consensus since its inception. And I have found these two most important elements, that these two most important elements have been guiding the foreign policy choice of this country even in the present era. I did so by tracing the creation and redefinition of the country's national identity from the 1780s to the middle of the 1840s. What I found was that was the dialectic between public morality and republicanism has been at the center of American national discourses over the years. And it is this interplay of public morality and republicanism that defines and redefines the country's national identity and national interest over and over again. As in the case, as was the case in 1812 and then in 1846, where we cannot explain why the United States saw Britain as a threat in 1812 and thus declared war against Great Britain, but not in 1846, without examining the moral codes of the American people at the time, we similarly cannot explain why the United States has been gravitating towards a unilateral foreign policy in the last few years, evidenced by the climactic war against Iraq without the United Nations authorizations, if we are not taking into consideration the moral codes of the Americans in the post Cold War era. So let me now apply this theoretical framework to explaining American foreign policy in the post Cold War era. Recently, the United States and Great Britain distinguished themselves from the rest of the world in their firm commitment to fight a war against Iraq. Both countries saw the use of force without the United Nations authorization as a legitimate international action. The United States repeatedly made a case about the security implications of replacing autocracies abroad with democracies, while Britain emphasized the imperative moral purpose of supporting human rights. Both these arguments, of course, were advanced within the context of the security threat emanating from Iraq possessing, or being suspected of uh, possessing, weapons of mass destruction. Ironically, respect for human rights and belief in the primacy of democratic institutions are also the pillars upon which the Western European democracies also stand. But the European democracies choose to externalize liberal values and promote democratic institutions abroad differently from the way Britain and the United States chose to do, as the recent experience over Iraq has aptly demonstrated. The Europeans do so by strengthening and expanding the web of existing international laws, transnational negotiations, and the role of the United Nations, all aspects of liberalism today. We cannot start to understand these different interpretations of the current security environment by the United States and reactions to this new security environment unless we locate the constitutive elements of the United States national identity. For example, recent analysis of American foreign policy towards Iraq emphasize America's newly discovered zeal for empire building as the root cause of the war against Iraq. On the other hand, we see how a large segment of the American public does not see American foreign policy as imperialistic, but rather as an inevitable, inevitable response to external necessities. What I am arguing here is that how the United States has been identifying itself over the years is a very good way for explaining American foreign policies, American foreign policy choices today. This explanation of foreign policy which makes us look at national identity will help explain not only the recent war against Iraq but also its execution without the United Nations authorization. I argue that it is how America conceptualizes liberalism today that has made the option of a multinational institutional approach towards Iraq less welcoming. Liberalism or uh, republicanism and today democracy has been the most important national signifier for the American people. This old belief in the exceptional moral character of the Republican citizen, itself a byproduct of the Puritan religious beliefs at the beginning of the 19th century, can be traced in today's beliefs shared by most Americans. Their conviction that the United States had a moral duty to rid the Iraqi people of an oppressive regime, as well as their assertion that the United States is exceptionally positioned to export democracy abroad, made the unilateral pursuit of the war possible, legitimate and thus possible. And according to the beliefs of most Americans, It is the international community that is lacking in moral resolve to do the right thing and not that the United States has been driven by expansionist desires when deciding to wage war against Iraq. Contrary to the arguments that see the United States asserting American domination abroad, the majority of the American people are sure that the United States is simply pursuing a moral agenda abroad. So how can we best explain these discrepancies in explaining current American foreign policy? I am going now, I'm going to apply my theoretical argument to very specific facts, so I will start with uh, an analysis of the threat perception as it was argued and presented in the National Security Strategy document by the Bush Administration in 2002. In the September 2002 National Security Strategy document, the Bush Administration identified rogue states as a new and potent threat to the national security of the United States. According to the document, uh, the new security threat was emanating from rogue states and terrorists, from the intentions of of these rogue states or terrorists to obtain weapons of mass destruction, and from the greater likelihood that they will use weapons of mass destruction against the United States. And the the document. argued that even though, and I quote, none of these contemporary threats rivals the sheer destructive power that was arrayed arrayed against us by the Soviet Union, end of quote, the nature and motivation of these new adversaries, adversaries make today's security, and I quote, they make today's security environment more complex and dangerous, end of quote. What makes these rogue states, these terrorists, such a formidable threat, the kind of threat that makes today's security environment more complex and dangerous, end of quote, compared to that of the Cold War, it is not their sheer destructive power, it is, according to the national security document, that these countries have very specific predispositions. According to the document, the leaders of rogue states are more willing to take risks, they're more willing to gamble with the lives of their own people, and they're more willing to squander the wealth of the ners- nations in pursuit of their aggressive goals. So, according to the document, these states are risk-acceptant, they're ready to sacrifice even, even their own lives, and irrational. In other words, they are undeterrable. The United States cannot hold them hostage on any account. As the National Security Document says, because of these characteristics, and quote, deterrence cannot be an effective defense, end of quote. Deterrence based only upon the threat of retaliation Is less likely to work against the leaders of these rogue states, the document says. And it also argues that deterrence worked during the Cold War because the Soviet Union was, quote, generally a status quo risk averse adversary, end of of quote. Of course, people will think that the rationale and the logic of why these rogue states and terrorists are under is quite uh, acceptable, especially after the 9-11 attacks against the United States. But to our surprise, we see that President Clinton had offered a similar assessment about the security threats against the United States before, of course, 9-11. Anthony Lake, the President's Assistant for National Security Affairs, had used the term backlash states to describe the emerging new threat to American security in the post Cold War era. He offered a threat perception which was very similar to the threat perception advanced by the Bush administration. He argued that Cuba, North Korea, Iran, Iraq, and Libya are. In the quote, Likaltrican and outlaw states that not only choose to remain outside the democratic family but assault its basic values. He said that for now they lack the resources of a superpower which would enable them to seriously threaten the democratic order being created around them. Nevertheless, their behavior is often aggressive and defiant. The ties between them are growing as they seek to thwart or quarantine themselves from a global trend to which they seem incapable of adapting." End of quote. And Anthony Lake argued that these countries shared some common characteristics. They are ruled by cliques that control power-free coercion, they suppress basic human rights, they promote radical ideologies, their leaders ha- share a common antipathy towards popular participation, they do not function effectively in alliances, and most importantly, they, say they share a shared mentality. As a result, Lake wrote that these countries, and I quote, are embarked on ambitious and costly military programs especially in weapons of mass destruction and missile delivery systems in a misguided quest for a great equalizer to protect the regimes or advance their purposes abroad end of quote so the identification of rogue states as a security threat to the United States is not a novel threat perception following the 9/11 attacks on American soil But the similarity in threat assessment by the Bush and Clinton administrations goes beyond the mere identification of rogue states as the new security threat. There is another consensus in addition to the fact that rogue states are threatening the United States. It is also the consensus uh, that was developing after the end of the Cold War lies on this shared understanding of why these particular countries pose a security threat. These rogue states are the antithesis of liberalism. They are ruled by corrupt uh, oligarchs through coercion who are suppressing the human rights of their citizens and some of them are promoting radical identities. In addition, all of them were suspected of wanting to acquire weapons of mass destruction. While the first three characteristics of rogue states pertain to how these countries defy liberalism within their own borders, the fourth one was (coughs) interpreted by the Bush administration as a violation of international law and as a challenge to the legitimate international order. The logic behind the rogue state security threat is that the act of subjecting people to brutality and oppression within the confines of a sovereign nation can have two implications for the outside world. (coughs) Oppressive regimes are more likely to externalize the same aggressive behavior abroad. The same way democracies are known to externalize abroad the domestically produced Pacific behavior. Also, these oppressive, oppressive practices at home induce these countries' self isolation from the rest of the international system, which in turn brings and perpetuates a sage mentality as they feel increasingly unable to adapt to a new global trend of democratization. It is, in other words, The inherently aggressive nature of these regimes, coupled with their desperation, which makes them such a lethal threat if they are allowed to develop weapons of mass destruction. As it was stated in the National Security Strategy document in 2002, these rogue nations and terrorists do not have, as I said earlier, the destructive power that the Soviet Union once had. However, the nature and motivations of these new adversaries, the determination to obtain destructive (coughs) powers, and the greater, greater likelihood that they will use weapons of mass destruction against us, makes today's security environment more complex and dangerous. These are the exact words that we can find in the security document. So it is really the expectation that rogue nations cannot but behave in an evil, aggressive and irrational manner that makes their possession of weapons of mass destruction destruction so lethal. It follows from this that it is not of paramount importance whether they actually possess these weapons. The mere suspicion of possessing such weapons is enough to turn them into a security threat because it is their nature so inherently brutal and aggressive and their isolation that makes them untrustworthy and irrational. President Clinton had offered a similar assessment about the threat to the United States from non-democratic countries in his State of the Union address in January uh, 1994. He stated, and I quote, democracies do not attack each other, and therefore the best strategy to ensure our security and to build a durable peace is to support the advance of democracy elsewhere. End of quote. He said that democratization was the third pillar of his foreign policy agenda. Now what is evidence from this common reference to the character of non-democracies as both a necessary and a sufficient basis from which to go their future foreign policy behavior is perhaps what this analogy says about how the United States sees itself, than about what might be the foreign policy options available to a dictator. America's post behavior abroad is grounded in the belief about the exceptional character of the American nation. The country's unique political and economic makeup, best defined as democratic capitalism, has since the inception of the Republic rendered the, ho- the home front immune to class, religious, and ethnic liberties, has promised equal opportunity to all, and has recently created the unprecedented affluence of the 1990s. Abroad, Democratic capitalism seems to have succeeded in crippling the former Soviet Union and its alternative politico-economic experiment, has reinstated Kuwait's national sovereignty, and has restored respect for human rights in areas like Bosnia and Kosovo. All these tangible successes, both at home and abroad, could not but point to the leadership role with which the United States has been entrusted by history, by virtue of its unique ability to succeed where all other countries have failed, both domestically and at the international level. Such belief in the centrality and righteousness of the American role abroad was echoed by Bill Clinton when he argued that, and I quote, the country is on the right side of history, end of quote. On the wrong side of history was, uh, Bill Clinton was finding at the time China. Thus prior to his trip to China in 1998, he said that he intended to offer the Chinese a new and different historical reality. And the same theme was continued with George W. Bush, When then the government uh, said in 1999 that we, and I quote, firmly believe that our nation is on the right side of history, end of quote. This belief in the country's right choice is now explicitly included in this new security document where it is stated that there is a single sustainable model for national success freedom, democracy, and free enterprise. In this context, it is consequential that the majority of the American citizens believe that the deliberative practices and institutions of their country inculcate in them the principle of decent and benevolent behavior towards others, both at home and abroad. And it is also consequential that most Americans believe that the United States has been, and still is, an exceptional democracy. In addition, almost everybody knows that the United States has more material capabilities than anybody else to embark on state building or democratization abroad. These public beliefs about Americans' nature, capability, and predisposition can easily see justice and mission in a foreign policy that intends to rid the world of security threats, in this case the rogue nations, while at the same time brings democratic institutions and democratic values to their people. In in the words of Anthony Lake, and I quote, As the sole superpower, the United States has a special responsibility for developing a strategy, strategy to neutralize, contain and through selective pressure, perhaps eventually transform these backlash states into constructive members of the international community. End of quote. If <coughs> the threat emanating for rogue backlash states is not due to the destructive power that they possess, but rather is the result of the fact that these states have leaders who are unlikely to engage in rational calculations, who are accustomed to using aggression against others, and who at who at the end of the Cold War find themselves under siege, then deterrence is no longer an effective defense. As it was argued in the national security strategy document of the Bush administration, deterrence based only upon the threat of retaliation is less likely to work against leaders of rogue states. In addition to the realization that a potential attacker can only be deterred if he is considered rational the National Security Strategy document also alludes to another reason that makes deterrence obsolete in the post-Cold War era. It is argued, and I quote, In the Cold War, weapons of mass destruction were considered weapons of last resort. But in the post-Cold War era, our enemies, sea, in sea of weapons of mass destruction as weapons of choice on which they rely in order to intimidate their neighbors, engage in military aggression against them, potentially use them to blackmail the United States, and see them as the best chance for overcoming the conventional superiority of the United States." End of quote. And though that was the signal when we all read and we heard the national security strategy document that indeed the United States was moving in a direction where it would argue that deterrence as we knew it during the Cold War was obsolete, and that maybe the country now had to find different ways of responding to threats, even better. Not waiting to respond to threats, but rather take a more proactive uh, foreign policy. If traditional concept, and this is what I'm going to try and explain now, this more unilateral proactive foreign policy. If traditional concepts of deterrence cannot work against these new threats in the post-war era, the United States cannot remain inactive according to the national security strategy document. It is therefore concluded that the United States, and I quote, will, if necessary, act preemptively, end of quote. But the idea about a proactive foreign policy is not a strategic initiative that was created as a reaction to the 9-11 attacks. And here again we see the continuation between the Clinton uh, foreign policy and the Bush foreign policy. It was not, this was a, a strategic option that was proposed for the first time by the Clinton administration. William Perry had advocated advocated in favor of a preventive defense while at at the Department of Defense. And his understanding of the specifics of this emerging strategic thinking are not different from the prescription of the preventive war strategy under the Bush administration. So again, The attacks against the United States on 9-11 were not the reason why the United States has changed its strategic, strategic option. Rather, the new idea about a preventive war is the effect of the national consensus that has been developing since the end of the Cold War. And this proactive foreign policy was taking place after the end of the Cold War, long before the 9-11 attacks occurred. Even before September 11, George W. Bush was arguing that the defensive barrier around the United States was rapidly eroding and that to do nothing would be perilous to the country. President Bush had argued at the time that the country was threatened by, and I quote, all the unconventional and invisible threats of new technologies and all hatreds." The end of the Cold War saw not the dissolution of what could have been called as a Cold War war relic, NATO, but the expansion of its mission. Instead of dissolving, following the dissolution of the region for its existence, NATO redefined itself and its mission. Ethnic conflict in the post-war Balkans was seen as a threat to the security of NATO members. This transformation took shape in the 1990s when the Pentagon announced its strategy of engagement and, uh, in out-of-area operations. The elder Bush first proposed the program of NATO enlargement. Clinton converted that idea into reality. With the Alliance's enlargement, Its mission to help spread democratic institutions took central stage in how NATO saw itself and how it was seen by others. In essence, it saw itself and it was seen by others as useful and necessary. If the self-identification of the country as an exceptional democracy is providing the conceptual lenses with which the American administrations have identified potential threats since the end of the Cold War, we need to turn to the country's public morality in order to understand the turn towards unilateralism in American foreign policy towards the same period. What we see is that while the similarity in threat perception since 1989 is a byproduct of the image that the the nation has about itself it is the country's overall public morality uh, that is helping this gradual move from multilateralism to a more curtailed uh, multilateralism, or what some will call unilateralism. And here I will look at some domestic developments uh, within the United States. The rise of the Christian right in American politics in the 1980s and the 1990s brought to the fore the importance of traditional social values for a large number of Americans. Supported by conservative evangelical Christians, the Christian right also found fertile soil in locales that were not expected to be influenced by traditional social values. These were the quiet prosperous suburbs of the South, Southwest, and the Midwest. What united evangelical Christians, prosperous suburban middle-class professionals, low-income and working-class people behind the Christian right was their perceived threat to the traditional American values of private property, minimum government regulation, individualism, hard work, self-sufficiency, family values, and traditional gender roles. Behind this attack they saw the workings of secular humanists and moral relativists who were spreading the ideas of liberal godlessness, state intrusion in the marketplace, and global collectivism. Their belief and fear was that the liberal liberal elite had been successful in sidetracking America, First with the New Deal's status and later with the social and cultural changes of the 1960s and the 1970s. These liberal reforms were seen as an attack on the regular working working Americans and their producerist ethos. The traditional ethos of producerism best exemplified by the productive groups of businessmen, manufacturers, hot hats blue-collar workers, and farmers, was under attack by the powerful class of non-producers comprised of a liberal verbalist elite, the dominant media, the major foundations and research institutions like us, the educational establishments, the federal and state bureaucrac- bureaucracies, and a semi-permanent welfare constituency. This anti-elitist sentiment and feeling of encirclement by excessive liberalization of social norms and an over-regulating state were further compounded by the apocalyptic beliefs and language of the Evangelicals. Evangelicals see the end of time as a moment where Hard working, righteous Christians will be betrayed by trusted politicians and religious leaders who are compri- conspiring with the Antichrist under the forced promises of public peace and unity of all nations under one world government. Fundamentalists have always warned against what they perceive to be a moral decline within the United States. If godless communism was their target during the Cold War, the threat from the secular humanists took central stage in the post-Cold War reality. They believe that the collectivism promoted by, labor- by liberals and secular humanists at home, as well as all around the world, with the help of like-minded elites is the new threat replacing the old communist menace. This new threat had domestic and international sources since the liberal humanist elites operated both at home and abroad. At home, it is a political correctness that went against traditional socio-values. At the international level is the collectivist new world order that liberal elites aspire to establish. The concept of the New World Order was equated in the minds of evangelicals and the right with tyrannical globalism and with transnational liberal elites collectivizing global governance. The response to this New new World Order was militant anti-collectivism aimed against the collectivization of global governance and of course the United Nations. In this slide one can understand how the pursuit of the Iraqi war without United Nations authorization is congruent with the prevailing moral codes in America today. It is then not a puzzle why the majority of Americans felt that it was a legitimate foreign policy choice to act against Iraq without the new global dictator, the United Nations. And let me conclude. The main argument that I try to advance here is that American foreign policy in the post Cold War era really encapsulates the consensual view, the national ideology that is, over Americans' proper role abroad since the end of the Gulf of the Cold War. If one were to look at the foreign policy continuity between the Clinton and the Bush administration, one can see the emergence of this national consensus over foreign policy before the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001. The tragic tragic events of September 11, therefore, seem to have done more to solidify in the nation's mind, a vision about its foreign policy mission that had been taking shape since the end of the Cold War then helped the nation redefine itself. This post-Cold War national consensus over the country's foreign policy is reflected not only in President Bush's <coughs> recently announced national security policy, but it is also evident in the foreign policies of his two predecessors. In this regard I am arguing that the events of September 11 acted more as a catalyst to a well formed foreign policy agenda than as a formative experience in the nation's life. Thank you.